0: This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place.
1: Ultimately, when we're writing these things, we want the world to change in a certain way. I mean, most of these Law Review articles do end with recommendations, which are aimed at a public policy audience. And if you're not reaching them where they are, then those proposals don't have a whole lot of chance of actually resulting in anything. And so you have to take that work and figure out where they are, where are they gonna read it, and how do you get it into that into that bloodstream.
0: I have with me Ona Hathaway, the Gerard C. and Bernice Latrobe-Smith Professor of International Law here at Yale Law School. Thank you so much for being here, Ona. Thank you so much for having me. So it's it's wonderful to have you here, and um, this feels very special to me because you have served an enormous leadership role in the school, including serving as my senior advisor. So I feel like talking about that first because that's what I am most grateful for. But of course, everyone else in the universe knows you best for your extraordinary scholarship. And so I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about some of the things that you've been up to, um, because we can't possibly cover it all in a single podcast. But I know you've been involved with all things Ukraine lately, and have played a key role in. Helping to create a special tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression against uh, against Russia. So, can you talk a little bit about what you've been up to?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, um, we're, it's a still a project that's underway. Um, but obviously, one of the questions that has come up with the war uh, in Ukraine is, you know, what kind of legal accountability is there going to be for the for the illegal war for the atrocities that are taking place, and. Um, The International Criminal Court, um, as people have probably seen, has already issued an indictment against Putin, um, and it will be investigating crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes. But there's one big crime that is left out of the ICC's jurisdiction uh, for various reasons. It's actually in the statute that creates the ICC, but it can't be prosecuted against uh, Russia and therefore against Putin because he, uh, because Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute that creates the court, and that is a crime of aggression. And the crime of aggression is really the crime of starting this war in the first place. And without the crime of aggression, none of these other crimes would happen. Without the crime of aggression, you wouldn't have the war crimes, you wouldn't have crimes against humanity, and you wouldn't potentially have genocide. And so the project I've been working on is How do we create accountability for that crime, um, given that it's not within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court?
0: So one of the things that's been sort of extraordinary to watch as this has unfolded is watching in real time your theory, the one that you worked on with Scott Shapiro, play out in the real world precisely the way you predicted it would be. So I wonder if you could just take us a little bit back to talk about your work on outcasting with Scott and and how did that idea originate? What is it? You know, just tell people what it, it, it talks about and then maybe we can talk about how it applies to Ukraine.
1: Yeah, so um, the book that Scott Shapiro and I wrote, The Internationalists, um, makes the argument that the foundational principle of the international legal order is the prohibition on war. Um, And we show this transformation that took place, we argue, beginning in 1928, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, where before that, war was perfectly legal and legitimate. States could go to war for basically any reason. They could go to war to collect debts. They could go to war because of interference with their trade relations. They could go to war for wife-stealing. There's all kinds of reasons that they could and did go to war with one another. And part of what we show is both what the world looked like when that was true and then how did that change? And so we argue that the key transformation began in 1928 with the outlawry of war in and, and the Kelly Brand Pact, and that was reaffirmed in the United Nations Charter in 1945. And in the book, what we try to do is not only describe and explain that transformation, but also show all the kind of legal pieces of the puzzle that had to be put together for that to, transformation to take place. And so part of what we argue is that one of the problems with the 1928 Brand Pact was they outlawed war, but they didn't really think about what all the consequences were going to be and actually what pieces had to be put in place to make that actually work. And they sort of began to figure it out over the course of the time from 1928 to 45. They put in these various pieces. And one of the pieces was outcasting, what we call outcasting. And the idea there was, OK, if you're not going to have war anymore to enforce your legal rights, Um, and you're not going to be able to use war, for instance, to enforce treaties um, or international law at all. How are you going to enforce the rules? So, you know, when Japan invades Manchuria, everyone's kind of perplexed about how they respond. Um, They can't respond with war because they just outlawed war. But how are they going to respond? Because they don't want to do no response. There should be some response. And we describe the process of legal innovation that leads to this idea of economic sanctions and outcasting. And in that case, they just refused to recognize this new entity, um, the puppet state that China created, Manchuco. And that was the first kind of use of sanctions, this non-recognition and sort of completely cutting off this region from any kind of economic trade as a mechanism of enforcement of international law. And so that's the story we begin to tell, and then we, have argued in our work generally that outcasting is now the main way in which international law is enforced in the modern legal order and we've written a large article and we talk about it in our book um, the various ways in which outcasting and one of the key forms of outcasting is economic sanctions are used to enforce the prohibition of war among other international legal principles and You see that in the Russia-Ukraine war, of course, with the enforcement of the prohibition on war through massive sanctions that have been put in place by uh, more than 40 states who've agreed voluntarily to put in place their own sanctions, um, as well as other forms of outcasting, of kicking Russia out of the Council of Europe and other kinds of international organizations. And so we're kind of seeing that play out in real time in this war.
0: It must be very gratifying to be right in the middle of one of the most important conflicts on, on the planet um, and to be able to actually do, do something about it? Because I think a lot of people feel very helpless so, and have it all be connected to the work you've done before.
1: Well, I think what's been interesting for me and gratifying is um, I think we have the theory that we developed in our scholarship kind of gives us a way of understanding what's happening in this war and also what the stakes are. Um, and so... The view that we developed in The Internationalist is that the prohibition on war isn't just one rule among many. Article two four of the United Nations Charter, which prohibits states from resorting to use of force, isn't just one provision. It's the foundational principle on which the rest of the international legal order is grounded. And that then gives clarity about how important the response uh, to this war is, because this is the first major ground war in Europe since World War II. It's a Unequivocal, unequivocal violation of the prohibition on war and the stakes are not just Ukraine the stakes are the global legal order um, and so when you see it that way then you know you're willing to pull out all the stops to do everything you can to respond and it's been part of the reason that I've been gratified to have a chance to be involved in some of these efforts like creating the special tribunal to try the crime aggression, which Is still a project that's underway, Um, so you know we we are. It is a it is a constant process of trying to build support for this idea, Um, and that's been a learning process too, working with the UN and representatives at the UN. Um, But also, you know, understanding what role sanctions are playing and the importance of sanctions, and thinking about the role of of um, various kinds of. Financial sanctions that would also then go to rebuilding Ukraine and the importance of that. So, I think it helps you see the picture in a kind of broader, deeper way, and not just see this as sort of one event that really just matters for Ukraine, but as an event that, when viewed in kind of historical context and over the course of centuries, has the potential to be a um, epic-shaping conflict and how states respond to that will make a huge difference for what the world looks like for the next hundred years. And so, when you see it that way, um I think it helps frame the importance of the response.
0: One of the things that I love the most about your work is just how wide- ranging it is. Uh, and so because, you know, the Internationalist is a book that is driven by a theory and covers an enormous range of of history and requires a huge sort of amount of peripheral vision and knowledge. And then, some of your work, you dig really deep, you've, you've, dig into a problem, you get the information that you need, and then show something that also that no one has seen before. So I, I'm thinking, for example, just one example of the piece you did in 2020 in the Harvard Law Review with uh, Kurt Bradley and Jack Goldsmith, which is a roadmap uh, about transparency of binding executive agreements. And so keeping in mind that not, any, not everyone knows what that means, could you talk a little bit about it? Because I know this work has actually been translated directly into policy. And I wonder if you could just first start with what you found And then maybe we can just fill in the gaps about where it's gone from there.
1: Yeah. So this has been a project um, that i worked on with Kurt Bradley, uh, now Chicago, and Jack Goldsmith of Harvard. And what we were interested in doing was really digging into deeply understanding um, these executive agreements. So what are executive agreements? These are agreements that are made by the United States are binding international agreements that are made by the United States with its various international partners, and it's not done through the process people think of when they think of international treaties. So they think of the constitutional process under Article 2, where there's advice and consent of two-thirds of the senators. That's not what these are. These are agreements that are have the same legal weight internationally, importantly. So they're treaties under international law, um, and the U.S. can be held responsible for violating them under international law. But under U.S. law, they're treated very differently. Um, All that the president has to do is either determine that if he determines that he can make the agreement under his own constitutional authority, he can just make them. Um, And if he needs prior statutory authority, he can also still make them as long as he can point to some prior statute. Under a law that was passed in the 70s called the Case Act, the only requirements is a transparency requirement, and that is that they have to report these to Congress. Um, and so what we did is we looked to see, do they actually do that? <laughs> do they actually report these to Congress? Um, and, you know, how well are they reported? And then also which purport, what proportion of these are actually published so that the public can see them, not just Congress? And to find that out, um, we had the idea of uh, putting a FOIA to the State Department to get copies of these cover letters that they – add to these agreements when they send it over to congress um, with further what's called case act reporting so whenever these agreements are made they're supposed to report it to congress within 60 days so we FOIAed it and they didn't they, they didn't respond and so with the help of the media freedom information access clinic here at yale uh, we sued them um, and so we sued the state department and under a settlement agreement with the state department they Um, eventually gave us over 5,000 of these um, cover letters. And the cover letters are really important because they tell you what agreements were made, but importantly, they have a line where they say what the legal basis is for the agreement. So then we collated all of that with the help of a ton of amazing YLS research assistants. We looked at every one of these um, laws that they were citing and, and looked at, do those laws actually authorize the president to enter into international agreements or not? The end result of all of this um, was a Harvard Law Review article that basically showed that, first of all, uh, executive branch is not observing um, all of its transparency requirements under the Case Act. And second of all, that a lot of the laws that it relies on for entering into these international agreements are not particularly strong sources of legal authority for these agreements. And that has a whole host of of other implications. Um, And in part as a result of that article, um, there was a a change to the Case Act, there are amendments in the last uh, National Defense Authorization Act that um, basically made all the recommendations we made in that article. So uh, almost all of them were, were entered into effect as well as some recommendations we are making in a forthcoming article that hasn't yet been published on another kind of agreements called non-binding international agreements that that we're still in the middle of working on.
0: So I want to talk about that first, and then I want to sort of circle back to what it was like to work with, I take it, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So let's talk a little bit about the non-binding agreements. It's kind of amazing that you haven't even published the piece and it's already affecting policy, but can you just give us a a primer on those?
1: Yeah. So when we finished this article in the Harvard Law Review, we thought, you know, that was great. Um, but then in the process of doing it, we realized and talking to a lot of people, look, one of the downsides of increasing transparency for executive agreements is that it might drive more the executive to rely more on non-binding international agreements. So what are non-binding international agreements? These are basically agreements that look almost exactly like executive agreements. They just are supposed to, like, avoid a few words, like instead of shall, they say endeavor to, or instead of will, they're supposed to say, you know, might or may or, you know, will aim to. Um, And... We had known that these existed, and scholarship has sort of observed the fact of the existence of these non-binding agreements, but nobody's really been able to kind of get a handle on what's actually going on because there are literally no reporting requirements, or there have been literally no reporting requirements for non-bindings. And so you might catch snippets of them here and there. So, for instance, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran Nuclear Deal, was done as a non-binding international agreement the Paris Agreement on climate change, much of it was done as a non-binding agreement. So some of these very like big deal agreements in the last few years have been done as non-bindings in part to avoid the Senate um, and the advice and consent requirement, which is impossible to overcome. And so we got the idea after coming off of this success of FOIAing the State Department, why don't we FOIA 24 additional (laughs) agencies to try and find all their non So, Thank God for Mafia. Yeah, thank God for Mafia. I I really have been like a full employment act for Mafia, and they've been amazing. Um, It's our best name clinic in addition to being an excellent one on its own. Exactly. So they were so game. I mean and this is not an easy thing because with each FOIA request, you have to investigate each agency's separate rules and figure out who you have to send it to and what you know statutory requirements they have. So they very gamely helped us FOIA 24 agencies and then we sued three, um, State Department, Department of Defense, and Department of Homeland Security. Uh, because they were really dragging their feet. Um, and we ended up with settlement agreements with state and DOD and DHS. We're still kind of in the midst of fighting with. Um, and they've been producing tons of these non-bindings. And the argument we're making there, and I think we've, I've, for the first time, created a database of non-bindings. Like, nobody's really seen more than a handful of these before. Very few of them are public. Congress doesn't even see them there's no reporting requirements. Even State Department has no idea what's going on. It has no idea what DOD is doing or DHS is doing or what any of the other agencies are doing because there's no requirement uh, amazing. to communicate. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing to me is like the vast majority of our diplomacy and international agreement making is happening without the Department of State having any idea what's going
0: on. So DOD is our foreign policy
1: ambassador. DOD is the face of U.S. foreign policy abroad. I mean, in fact, when we sued them, they had to disclose how many agreements they thought would be responsive, and they said 6,000. <laughs> 6,000 just for DOD, just for this 30-year period that we were looking at. Um, now, they haven't actually given us 6,000, so we're in the process of working with our lawyers to try and find out why Have they only given, they've only? they given us about 600 now over the course of almost a year. Um, I think that the answer is going to be that class- the rest are classified, um, and that's why they haven't been handing them to us, but we're, we're sort of trying to find that out. But if that number is even like vaguely right, the rest of the agreements we have right now, we have 3,000 in our database and 600 of those are DOD agreements. So if that 6,000 number is right or even close to right, then DOD kind of swamps everybody else, including the State Department. Um, It is amazing. And what's also amazing is that if you look at the graph and one of the things we do here is we graph the binding agreements, executive agreements um, against non bindings and executive agreements are just falling off. Um, and meanwhile, non-bindings are rising. And so we call it the rise of non-binding agreements because it is really taking over binding agreements and becoming the key way in which the US and the rest of the world, frankly, is making its international agreements. And other countries are doing the same thing for the same reason, which is to avoid their own political um, and legal oversight processes. So. We're also holding a set of conferences. Um, Kurt's, uh, Kurt Bradley is uh, running a conference that we're, um, that is centering around this work in Paris in the fall. So we're kind of trying to bring it on the road um, to also get scholars around the world asking the same questions in their own countries.
0: What I love about this, Ona, is that, you know, when you think about how international law is traditionally taught in the classroom, what it looks like in a traditional casebook, it looks nothing like this. I mean, and you're, you're completely uncovering what international law really is, but, but not from the sources that we typically look to.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I love about this project is like when you look at a typical international law um, casebook, a lot of it is, or a formulations law casebook. a lot of the focus is on these Article II treaties, the kind of big, flat, you know, the big treaties, the human rights treaties and the like. And, and there's lots of good reason to work on that. And I spent a lot of my life working on human rights treaties. But really, that's not where the action is these days. Like, that is not where international law is now. Um, it is the guts of international law today are these executive agreements and increasingly these non-binding agreements. And international lawyers have basically zero visibility into that. They have no idea what's going on, and um, and and you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing within the U.S. government either. So there's lots of reasons to think that like digging into this is going to change our view of what international law looks like. It raises a lot of really deep and interesting questions too that we don't attempt to answer in the article. Like, what does it mean that these quote unquote non-bindings Are the new face of international law, but they claim not to actually create law. Um, And what does it mean that they're displacing these binding agreements? What does that mean about the value of law? What does that mean about the ways in which law is enforced or not enforced? What does it mean about the face of international law going forward? And you know, these are I hope we kind of open those questions up. You know, one article can't answer all of those, but the hope is we're gonna put all this on the on, you know, Dataverse, we're gonna put all these agreements up online. And my hope is that scholars will dig into this and kind of see this as an invitation to reorient the field around this set of
0: questions. And one of the things also is just so interesting is that the through line from your work is transparency in two senses, right? Transparency in the sense that you've made things transparent. So but but you know, going back to Treaties End, right? You've been thinking about the political and, and power dynamics of transparency and the way that it works. So way back in 2008, Yeah, just I mean, when we first met each other, I yeah, think. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, I think the through line for me is both like just curiosity about how international law actually works, but also my view has long been that international law deserves to be treated with the seriousness that domestic law is treated. But if we're going to ask for that, that we have to our, hold ourselves to that own same standard, and so it has to meet the same standards of democratic legitimacy and interbranch uh cooperation and collaboration and you know transparency to the public, and you know, those are standards that shouldn't just apply to domestic law, this should apply to international law as well. And so to me, it comes out of a deep belief in the value of international law, but also in the sense that international law shouldn't kind of hide behind this veil of like, oh, we're just international law, it's foreign relations law, it's sort of something different and it can play by different rules. I actually think it's because I think it's so important and because I think it's so central and because I think it deserves to be treated with such seriousness is exactly why I want to hold it to the same standards that
0: that I think we ought to hold um, domestic law as well. So maybe I could talk a little bit about the way you combine two rules, which is one is pure scholar, and the other is, is public intellectual and pushing forward policy and so on. And those things aren't always this, don't always involve the same skill set. And I wonder how you think about those two roles and which feels the most comfortable to inhabit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that first and foremost, I think of myself as a scholar. But I think in the modern age, if you want your work to have an impact and you're going to labor on these things for, you know, years... Um, you want you want people to actually read them. You want the ideas to have some influence, and so part of I think of my job as as you know idea generation, but also teaching and teaching here within the law school and teaching the public at large. Um, and so you know when I write scholarship, I try to think about how do we get these ideas out into the world, and so there are a number of outlets that um, that. Allow for that. Um, one that has been an important one for me the last few years is I'm an executive editor for this online blog called Just Just Security. And the thing I love about Just Security is like whenever I wrote, write a hundred page law review article, I write like a two page blog post, and it's a way of getting the essential ideas kind of into the, you know, into the system. There's lots of foreign, you know foreign policy people who read that. Lots of people in the in U.S. government who read it, and it's a way to kind of get the ideas into the bloodstream of people working on these things. And then they can, if they want to go like read the hundred-page article, they can. But most of them probably won't. But they'll at least get the basic ideas. And so that's a way to kind of take work like what Jack and Kurt and I did in writing this very serious law review article that took us, you know, it was a lot of data work and lots of research assistant hours and all the work from mafia and all this work to generate this law review article. But like, how do you translate that into actually making those recommendations have some impact in the world? Well, if you're just leaving pages of the law review, it's less likely to have that impact than if you also are doing some of this writing on the side. Um, and frankly, that kind of writing is fun. It's exercising a different muscle. You know, I mean, it's Law Review writing is, you know, it, it takes a very long time frame. And the same with the books, very long time frame. You're working on something for years, and then you submit it, and the Law Review picks it up, and then it's another year before it actually comes out, or in some cases, two years. And the nice thing about these um, more immediate kinds of writing, like just security, or, or doing op-eds, or, uh, you know, things for foreign affairs, which I've been doing a fair bit of, is you write it, and it's out like the next day or the next week. And that's very satisfying. You know, it's very nice to kind of have your ideas get out into the world much more quickly. And then also the way, again, of drawing people, hopefully, into your more serious work, you know. And so it's a way of getting those ideas out there, but it's also a way of, of, you know, being in conversation, I think, with people who, you know, ultimately, when we're writing these things, we want the world to change in a certain way. I mean, most of these Law Review articles do end with recommendations, which are aimed at, a public policy audience and if you're not reaching them where they are, then those proposals don't have a whole lot of chance of actually resulting in anything. And so you have to take that work and figure out where they are, where are they gonna read it and how do you get it into that into that bloodstream. So that's that's been, you know, I see that as part, part and parcel of the work that I'm doing.
0: Well, one of the reasons I think you're so successful is because you're known to be a straight shooter. Um, you know, you have your own commitments, but you also call them as you see them. And, and it's actually been really fun to watch you do a lot of this work with Jack and Kurt, who I think that if you ma- if we mapped you all on the political spectrum, you'd be on very different spots. Yes. Um, But you've found this incredible working relationship together. I don't know if you want to say a few
1: more. I mean, they're great fun to work with because they're very serious scholars um, and they want to get it right. Um, and we have rewritten, we've rewritten the non-bindings piece like from top to bottom several times. And that was after it was accepted by the Chicago Law Review. So it was not, you know, because we're sort of looking for a better placement, but because all of us are kind of want it to be as, as good as it can be. And, and working with them is, is great. I mean, they care about the ideas. We have really shared views about the importance of democratic legitimacy of international law. And that's a place where we meet. Um, and a kind of curiosity about how these things work um, and, you know, what's actually going on in the world and kind of interest in kind of mapping that and understanding that and then translating it out into the world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I started my career really as a critic of their work um, and, uh, you know, if in many ways in opposition to a lot of the things they've done and a lot of that I've written has been. Um, at some odds with some of their work. Um, But what's so great about them is like none of us takes that personally. Like we work together on the things that we care deeply about together. And we also are all open to being persuaded. Um, And so, you know, occasionally there'll be points where we're in disagreement on something where we're writing, but we're always able to either write around it or find a way to persuade one another about the right way forward. Um, And that's been really great and a lot of fun. It's always interesting and fun to work with somebody who cares about ideas and who wants to get it right and who's willing to listen and be persuaded, but also smart enough to persuade you that they're right um, when you disagree. Well,
0: it's nice to see you modeling the habits of lawyers and scholars in a world that makes it really hard to do that.
1: Yeah. No, it's been great. And I think, you know, this is something that academia ideally um, uh, does gives us an opportunity to do and caring deeply about these ideas um, and working together. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Can we talk a little bit about teaching? Because you're a beloved yeah. teacher. Uh, and and one of the things I love the most about your teaching is that one of your teaching strategies is to go out and ask pe- uh, people who are doing real policy work at what the impossible question is and then answer it. Uh, and so I wonder if you just yeah. <laughs> talk a little bit. It's a really different teaching model.
1: Yeah. Well, when I came back, to Yale. I, I left Yale and went to Berkeley for a year. And when I came back, I thought, what what do I want to do? You know, what how do I want to innovate with my teaching? And you know, there's a lot of exciting things happening in Washington. And I thought, you know, our students are so brilliant and so capable. Like maybe what we could do is is work on projects that are actually like bridge this academic real world divide by working on projects in the classroom that are of real interest to people. Um, in the real world. And so I went to a few friends and said, you know, what are some interesting hard questions that you're working on? And, and I served on the advisory committee, at the state department. So I went to the state department, um, legal advisor's office, uh, which I at that point had been working with for about five years and invited them to give me some projects. So I got a bunch of projects and the students started working on them. And the aim was to produce white papers um, and we did. And then after um, looking at them, and realize, I realized with one of them, um, I think one of the earliest ones that we did this with, one of them was a question that I got uh, from someone actually in Congress, which was sort of, what is the law that regulates cyber attack? Should we be doing something different around this? You know, should we have a new treaty? And so I began, I was like, oh, that's a really interesting question. What's the law that regulates cyber internationally and began investigating that. And when we wrote the white paper on that, I looked at it and I realized, like, nobody's actually written about this in the scholarship. And like, maybe we could try submitting it as a law review article. Like, let's see. And I don't think at that point many people had done sort of multi-author law review articles. That at least wasn't typical and particularly with students. But I thought, like, let's give it a shot. Like, who knows? Like, somebody might pick it up. Um, so we submitted it. And lo and behold, California Law Review was interested in it and picked it up. Um, and so I think I have four student co-authors on that piece. Um... And it was one of the first pieces on the law, international law, applying to cyber um, in uh, legal scholarship. And one of my co-authors on that, um, Rebecca Krutoff, is now teaching uh, at Richmond Law School and is a law and tech, like leading law and tech scholar. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, we have amazing students with such creativity and genius and brilliance that we can and we have so many resources here. I mean, the libraries are amazing. The Just everything that we have here is just above and beyond what anybody, frankly, in the federal government really has. I mean, I know this from having spent a year at the Department of Defense. Like, the library was nothing compared to Yale Law School's library. And so we actually can do offer some value add and try and understand a problem and then doing our best to try and figure out a way to solve it. Do we get it right every time? No. But... It's always a lot of fun, too, because we're working collaboratively. It's a great way both for me to work closely with a bunch of students, but also for them to work with one another. And I think in many of their careers, um, most lawyers don't sort of toil alone in their rooms by themselves. Like, typically, you're working on collaborative um, projects and you're working in teams and you're having to share ideas. And sometimes you're going to disagree about how something should be done. You have to figure out how to work around that disagreement. And so part of what i also enjoy about it is that that's like a different kind of learning process for them and and it's also always a challenge for me cuz like how do i how do i take what i think about this how do i learn from that they're teaching me how do we find a way forward together that we can agree with, on when well, we might be coming at it from very different directions and so every year it's a new challenge not just because we have new problems and we have new students, but because you know, the world is changing. And so it's, it's, always, it's always incredibly gratifying. And, and I think the students tend to really enjoy it because they're working on something where you know somebody at a federal agency they know is going to read it because they're interested
0: in it. And then we may um, also turn it into something that's kind of published and out in the world. And I know it's also not the only way that you um, put people out into the into the academy because when before I became dean, every faculty member sits on prize committees and we we evaluate papers and almost inevitably I would find that no matter what prize committee I was on, there was someone who had been mentored by you because you're so rigorous about teaching students to get from you know zero to sixty uh, for their papers and and you have a system for doing it and you really teach them scholarly habits and so unsurprisingly, so many of the papers that you held sort of mentor into existence are in the prize committees list, which is really amazing.
1: I appreciate your saying that. And, And I, you know, that's part of the joy of teaching here is, you know, students have these great ideas. Sometimes they don't always know how to get from point A to point B. And that's part of our job is to help them figure that out. And I think one thing is that people might think that writing is easy, and writing is never easy, right? It's always a bit of a struggle. And Um, So, you know, what you want to encourage students to realize is like when they run into trouble, like that's just part of the process. Like that's normal. Um, And that's a sign you're on to something good if you're not quite sure how to how to proceed. And so how do you make your way through that uncertainty and how do you find your way forward and how do you find you know, how do you find a good question? But then how do you. You know how do you find how do you figure out what you think about the issue and how do you think of writing as a process of discovery and then translating your writing what it is you've discovered and how you've thought about that problem and i also i think one thing that i really have enjoyed doing and i think the students enjoy is use student feedback on one another's work you know so a lot of these a lot of these projects the foreign relations international on practice course that i do and then when i supervise student papers Often, what I'm interested in doing is getting students to get genuine feedback from one another, and um, and and the part of that is also talking about how do you provide feedback to other people in a way that they can hear it, and how do you don't always pull your punches, but how do you provide critical feedback in a way that people can hear it, um, and and how providing just telling people what they're doing is great is not actually doing them a huge favor. Um, you know, what you want to do is provide critical feedback because it helps them improve, but you have to know how to provide that feedback in a way that actually allows them to hear it and know the right way forward. So I think that's all part of the learning process um, and it's part of what I enjoy doing and I think it's part of what helps the students develop their best work. I love like jumping on these new ideas and new problems and being fed kind of by what's happening in the world. All the stuff I've been doing on Ukraine the last year, for instance, has been completely different from anything I've done before, and I'm learning a lot about how the UN works and about you know, international criminal law and how do you create a special court to try the crime of aggression and what are the limits on the General Assembly's powers and I mean, all these things that I had no idea. What are the, all the questions around personal immunity and that law? You know, There's lots of things that I didn't know a thing about a year ago that now I feel like I know deeply, and that's part of the joy of this job is being able to kind of drop everything and you know do a ukraine for a year um and to really put your heart and soul into that and you know that's part of my teaching as well and this foreign relations and international law practical course that we're doing some of the questions we're working on are related to ukraine like what are the legal past reparations for ukraine for instance is a set of questions people are asking and so we've been writing about that. You know, how does countermeasures theory give you a space to do something new? And all of this is innovating, all of this is legal innovation, but innovating from a deep foundation. And I'm, and I'm a big believer in finding ways forward to solve new problems by not being stuck in the law as it is, but finding ways to innovate, but innovation deeply grounded in the law, not just making it up as you're going along, and being able to make the argument, OK, yes, the General Assembly has not exactly established a tribunal to try the crime of aggression before, but there's lots of really good precedents. And if you read the UN Charter and you read these previous decisions, of the ICJ and you look at things that it has done in the past, there's a really good firm foundation to suggest that this is not a major leap and that there's it's consistent with the legal authority of the General Assembly and being able to make that in a really textured, deep, solid way. I think of as kind of the mark of the work that we do, uh, which is really grounding it. And I think there's some people who are willing to kind of either dismiss it out of hand or kind of assume that, I oh, it's easy. <laughs> you know, of course the General Assembly can do this. And I think, you know, what I tell my students is like, we're the ones who are going to do the hard work. We're going to write the 20 page, you know, memo that like goes through an excruciating detail, the charter and the provisions of the charter and all the things that allow us to, do this. And if at the end, we conclude that the answer is no, then that's the answer. You know, I mean, that's, we have to be prepared to come up with the answer that, that we don't want to hear because that's the only way to be a really good lawyer is you're not going to
0: kind of force the results. You're going to get to the result that the law takes you to. So I sometimes joke that when I'm done with this job, I'm going to write skits for the law review, um, our in-school parody. And one of the skits that I I have in my head is, um, yeah, law school's closed, and everyone has to go get a different job. I have no doubts about your ability to go get a different job. You can run any organization you want um, and do anything that you want. And and the reason I know that is because you have served as a senior advisor for the first five years of my deanship. And the only reason that you aren't a senior advisor is because every year you talk. Told me you should rotate someone else in and and you should rotate me off and I refused to say yes until you finally took a two by four and hit me really hard <laughs> and refused to to allow me to keep you there. but it, but it's been I, I can't even describe the debt that I owe you for uh, for being part of that. I mean things like you know we're talking about the leadership program and you were the person who said, our students need to know there are many paths, and that just stuck with me um, and really helped frame out what we did with the leadership program to getting us through COVID when we had to basically reinvent ourselves in in what were really hard and difficult times. And it's just been extraordinary to have you um, inside uh, and giving wise advice from beginning to end. So I just want to say, you know, it's just amazing that you do all of these things so well, but, but I think that part is probably invisible to most of the place, but I see it feel it deeply because it is very rare to have someone who's a wise, decent, filled with integrity advisor who never once puts their own interest in front of the school, who always gives candid advice, who says no when when the dean nears to, needs to hear no and I just want to just end by thanking you. It has been one of the greatest joys of the deanship is getting the chance to work with you as a senior advisor. And- oh, thank you so much, Heather. And,
1: you know, honestly, it was a joy to be able to do that. I mean, I've learned a lot from watching your leadership. Um, and, you know, we've dealt with a lot of challenges over the, those five years. And it was really a great learning experience to see how you handled that and sort of built a team and found our way through some challenging times. I mean, COVID, of course, was a challenge nobody anticipated. And um, so I'm I'm really grateful for for the opportunity to have had a chance to be a part of that and uh, and to kind of you see the you see the best of the place um, often in that experience. Sometimes you don't always see the best of the place. Sometimes you see some of the more challenging aspects. But but it's also you know at the end you realize you know what a special place Yale Law School is. How lucky we are all to be here. Oh, what an amazing group of colleagues we have and students um, and know, I was really grateful to have the opportunity to work with you on that. So, so thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Ona. Thanks for having me.